0: Welcome to the seventh episode in the IPA's 10-part series, the IPA's Great Books of Literature podcast. My name is John Roskam, the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. In this series, Andrew Bolt and I talk about 10 of the great books of literature with our compere, James Bolt, the host of the IPA's Young IPA podcast. So far in this series, we have discussed Bleak House, The Leopard, Weathering Heights, Don Quixote, Zorba the Greek and Heart of Darkness. In this episode, we will be talking about The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope. As James will outline in a moment, the book is a study taken from today's front pages. It is about financial scandal. It is about the intersection of politics and business, as well as being about personal relationships, friendships, and duty. The book was written over 100 years ago. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes and tell your friends and family about the show.
1: Okay, before we start with the discussion, I'll just have a brief plot summary. So The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope was first published in 1875. It is considered to be his greatest work, and The Guardian recently ranked it as the 22nd greatest book ever written. Trollope wrote The Way We Live Now after returning to England after a lengthy amount of time in Australia as a satire and rebuke to what he saw in the financial crisis of the early 1870s and the corruption, greed, and dishonesty in the British financial culture that it exposed. The Way We Live Now has many subplots, but the main plotline revolves around Augustus Malmot, a financier of mysterious background who establishes himself with a large house in London. Now, Malmot is ruthless, arrogant, corrupt, and extremely wealthy. No one knows how he got his money or where he came from, but other Londoners know he's a person worth knowing. Even as Melmot's background story begins to unravel, the desire other Londoners have to be near Melmot continues to help him climb up the social ladder, even delivering him to a seat in Parliament, despite Melmot not having any political beliefs. Eventually, Melmot does unravel, however, but not before Cholp uses him to expose the dark heart of corruption he sees in British society. But before we start talking about the book, I know both of you gentlemen want to discuss Anthony Cholp's life, so do we want to start there? Yeah, actually... I think we need to go back, John. We need to go back to
2: his mum's life because his mother was an amazing influence. Well, all mothers are, but this one in particular. Uh, An amazing influence, but also a model for him in how he worked and also a model for one of the key characters in the book we're going to discuss, The Way We Live Now, which is now seen as his masterpiece, although, of course, most people know Anthony Trollope from things like The Barchester Chronicles, which was made into a BBC series and also the parliamentary novels or the Plantagenet novels, or however you want to put put it,
0: uh, which was also made into a wonderful series uh, with Susan Hampshire. Um, and, and, Andrew, you convinced me that we should do The Way We Live Now. I was – we've always loved Trollope. Um, love Trollope. And it was you – I wanted to do one of the parliamentary novels because I, I, I think they're wonderful, and we could have picked a, 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 a Barchester Chronicles novel. But The Way We Live Now stands alone. It – is ripped from the front pages of twenty eighteen, and exactly as you say, there's lots of his family in it. There's lots of different influences in it, and as you said, let's talk about his mother because there's not too much to say about his father, which we'll talk <laughs> about too. It's
2: absolutely <laughs> true, and 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 where we're going to be talking about this, we will we'll be drawing, I think, parallels later with the childhood with of Charles Dickens, a contemporary of his. So if so you
0: he... do his mother, and then I'll talk okay, about his well, father. Fanny <laughs>
2: Trollope is is. Fanny, or Chris and Francis, uh, Fanny Trollope is just an amazing figure, an amazing woman. I mean, here's a woman. She was the daughter of a, a minister and an inventor, <laughs> tinkering away in the back shed. Um, born in uh, 1780. Uh, she didn't get married until she was 29, so I think she was left on the shelf for a fair bit. You know, 29 back then is when a woman starts to panic.
0: And there's a lot of that in the way we live now, when oh, when, when, yes. when the daughters are saying, "Oh, look, I've I, I had my season. Am I coming out two or three years ago, and I'm still not married?"
2: Uh, well, it was a really big business for a woman to get married because that was the only business, right? Almost no careers. If you didn't get married, you were a dependent for the rest of your life and
0: And as Trollope says, there's not too much love in some of those marriages, which, again, we'll talk about.
2: Absolutely, because the book actually could be called The Business of Marriage, as well as the way we live now, The Business of Marriage. Uh, Fanny Trollope, though, well, she finally gets married at 29 to a barrister, Thomas Trollope, whose uh, unique... Characteristic, uh, as far as Anthony Trollope was concerned, in his marvelous autobiography, was his ability to alienate even people who loved him. Uh, so he died unmourned, uh, and alienate
0: a- his his family. And and as Correct. you said, Trollope's autobiography is just harrowing. It is an incredible book, and he talked almost. You could imagine him writing this with tears in his eyes about how his father loved us, but he could never never express it and we, tr- and, we tried to lo- and we tried to love him too. Correct, but he drove
2: everyone away because he, including his clients, this was the problem, he was an able lawyer but uh, uh, he just had a talent for insulting his clients, disastrous speculations, bought a farm that was uh, a monster, built houses and drove the family
0: bankrupt. And then, dr- and drove his wife overseas for years and years to well, try and make money to keep the family going.
2: Yeah, so F- Fanny Trollope then... Um, I mean, so many disasters. She had five children and so many died um, during her life. The third son, when he was 11, died of TB. This becomes a bit of a theme, unfortunately. Um, And she ticks off to America with a man who was her helper, an artist. May have been more, we don't know. May have been more, we don't know. Plus uh, uh, three of her five children. Henry, who she wanted to get settled over there and two of her daughters so she goes she goes to america to for a little sort of uh, you know a utopia that's uh, created in a, in, in a showbin tennessee goes out to this utopia of woman uh, called Frances Bright finds it's only like three sheds in yeah, a swamp. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, the, the typical experience of utopian communities. Correct. How did that work out?
2: <laughs> Correct. So she's gone with a, a lot of money, gone over there. Oh, my goodness. Uh, zip to Cincinnati, which is a booming city, sets up a thing called you know, a bazaar, a sort of shopping sort mall. Sort of a trinket shop. Well, ahead of a the time, though, it had a cafe and the whole thing. It was grand, but except it lost a lot of money because she was also an, you know, an English woman. They didn't. Whatever. It failed. She goes back to London. And by the way, here's a note that we'll come back to later. During this time, she has left Anthony Trollope, the least loved of her children, alone in London as a kid. One of the most miserable times of his life. Uh, This is a really scarring thing for him. One of the many scarring things. Which he never got over. Never got over. And which he
0: would then talk about
2: all the time. I hated my childhood. Correct. And he uh, also didn't rate his mum. So she comes back. Her husband has made them also broke. They've got to flee to live in Belgium, right, to escape the creditors. The bailiffs He She tells the
0: children, we're getting on a boat. I'm not telling you where we're going or why we're going, um, but you're going to wake up in Belgium. (laughs) That's exactly right. So so
2: broke. She writes a book called The Domestic Manners of the Americans, which is a sort of travelogue. And it's the first of uh, her 40 books. Can you believe it? You know, she's... She's aged, uh, what is it, 53, and up to then she's done nothing uh, in terms of writing, 40 books from And she writes
0: to make money to support the family.
2: Absolutely, which is in fact the character that inspired the way we live now is going to be about exactly such a woman who was not very good literary, didn't really care to be fantastic, wanted to make money, needed to make money for... Well, in in this case, Lady Carberry wanted to do it for a dissolute son. In this case, it's for a dissolute husband and, and family. And Trollope's
0: mother would wake up in the middle of the night. She would be uh, nursing her sick children with TB and she would just churn out the words to keep the family alive.
2: Correct. Domestic Manners of the Americans was a huge hit, the biggest hit in her life. It's, I think the one book still uh, in in print... And uh, attacking Americans for being vulgar and crass and the women leading really strange lives. Yes, exactly <laughs> right. Appalled by the spitting, appalled by the treatment of slaves, which is interesting, social conscience there. Like at uh, one, one house, she says, you know, she, uh, a, a, a black servant girl accidentally swallowed poison rat bait. And she nursed the girl and and held her and comforted her. And the family, she said, was amazed that she would uh, show such, uh, and such terror. And this was
0: held, and, and her sympathy uh, for the slaves and her opposition to slavery was held against her by some of her English readers. Absolutely. And that's absolutely right. And you mentioned
2: how she got up in the middle of the night and wrote and then she'd be there for a family and they remembered her, Or at least Tom, the eldest the eldest son, remembered her and he cared for her for the rest of her life, uh, remembered her as someone who's always ebullient, always saw the best, you know, she was a, a hearty, fun loving kind of person and really into French society as well. Um, but you mentioned that she nursed sick people. I mean, this is amazing. She would write, and this is a, a note for something that, that repeated by Anthony Trollope. Um, she would write every day through the most amazing stuff, headaches, pain, all that kind of stuff. But in particular in Belgium, her husband's dying of TB. Her son, her uh, the, now a second son, is dying of TB in the house. Her daughter's already getting sick. She was eventually to die from TB. And Anthony Trollope wrote this in his fantastic autobiography. There were two sick men in the house and hers were the hands that tended them. The novels went on, of course. We'd already learned they'd be forthcoming at stated intervals and they were always forthcoming. He said, I have written many novels in many circumstances but I doubt much whether I could write one where my whole heart was by the bedside of a dying son. Her power of dividing herself into two parts and keeping her intellect by itself clear from the troubles of the world and fit for the duty it had to do, I never saw equaled. That was one formidable woman. And I think it really a bit sad. I mean, the resentment comes over. His treatment of Lady Carberry, who's an aspiring novelist, is not very sympathetic.
0: And then that's what he said about his mother in his autobiography. He then says He didn't he said rate her works much. He didn't rate her works much. Much, but he knew what she was doing for the family, and in a strange way, I think he was sort of proud of her. So yes. you compare what he said about his mother to his father, and for any child, yeah. who, and, and Trollope wrote his autobiography near the end of his life, um, and he said this about his father, "...the touch of his hand seemed to create failure." He embarked in one hopeless enterprise after another, spending on each all the money he could at the time command, but the worst curse to him of all was a temper so irritable that even those whom he loved the best could not endure it. We were all estranged from him, the family, and yet I believe that he would have given his heart's blood for any of us. His life as I knew it was one long tragedy. It's
2: interesting there How are so that not many, affect you? <laughs> I know. There are so many autobiographical thing notes coming into the various books. You recall, of course, um, George Eliot, right, her, her masterpiece, um, Middlemarch. George Eliot was We're probably, putting that in series number two because we talked about yes, Middlemarch. Yes. Um, George Eliot was one of his closest friends, right, uh, later in life. You might recall Casubon, the, the, the tragic figure in Middlemarch. You know, the man is forever writing this great almost like an encyclopedia of the church or something like that, never gets done. He devotes his whole life to this useless work that will never be completed and never be read. In fact, Trollope's own father did exactly that, did exactly that, never completed, never read. Uh, he just locked himself into study, and that was him. That figure comes into George Eliot's novel. And also uh, Trollope, later his wife, her father was a bank manager in Yorkshire. Um, and they were living in a, in a house so terrible that the sewage was forever flooding in, this, in the uh, basement and stinking out the house. So I think she was pretty glad to get out of there and marry Trollope. But he robbed from his own bank. He was a model of rectitude. He invested in railways, just like the villain of uh, the way we live now. Just like the villain of the way we live now. Um, big investor in a speculative uh, railway uh, enterprise robbed from his own bank, found out, fled to France and died, a, I think, of a stroke or something like that. So that
0: was in his background too. And, and then through his life, Trollope overcorrects for these failures. And there's one tell, point Tell, that tell I, us about the schooling because that was well, before miserable. we talk about the schooling, so I'll, I'll, I'll say a few words about uh, his life. And we've mentioned his autobiography um, a couple of times and it is interesting that we know so much about... Um, Trollope, as we've mentioned, uh, near the end of his life, uh, he wrote an autobiography that did absolutely nothing for his uh, posthumous reputation. It was published after he died, (laughs) and he wrote it for his son to get the royalties. Uh, In it, he talked about his his mother, his father. He talked about the fact uh, that he wrote for money. He he didn't even really regard himself as a as a craftsman. It was more as as a tradesman, Um, and it did huge damage to his reputation and I keep on thinking that uh, if, if Trollope had lived his life starving in a garret and had written maybe four or five novels compared to the what was it 47 novels that he wrote his reputation would stand in much But it's higher so stu- stead. You know,
2: this, this whole controversy to me is so stupid, really. Uh, but you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Because he said, you know, I would sit there every morning because he actually had a full-time career for most of his life in the post office. And he's the bloke that invented the post box that you see in the middle of the street. That's him. He, he did that. Um, and he became quite senior in the post office after being a complete failure to start with. Uh, but every morning, you get up at 5.30, you had a servant come in, wake him up, get to 5.30. I'm, I
0: want to read out a, a, a section on this from a terrific yeah. biography about this because it's really interesting. But-
2: he he go, wakes up at 5.30, writes to 9.30, he's got a watch in front of him and every 15 minutes he's got to write 250 words. So he writes about 2,000 words on average every morning, every day, Wherever he is, whether he's on a voyage, seasick at one stage, is getting heavily seasick, no, I've got to do it. And he actually enjoys it. He's liberated. I know he does it for the money, but the point is, and people think, oh, how could you be so, you know, why don't you agonise? He said, look, my works are good, as good as it would get if I just sat there for three hours staring into space. It doesn't matter. This is the best and, I could and do. And
0: before we started this podcast, I asked you, Andrew, how many um, words is an average column of yours and you said about 750 words so it's estimated Trollope wrote about 12 million words over his life in the 47 novels the volumes of short stories for travel books uh, lots of criticism and pressing on my calculator 12 million words is, Andrew, you writing 750 words every day for about 40 years. <laughs> and it's, just a, and, and, and it's, it's and then going off to and work. And it's an important point about, before, and we'll come to his life in a moment, but um, it's an important point about this writing. So as you, as you said, he was a great friend of George Eliot, and, and George Eliot at a dinner party one day said to him, look, how, how do you do this? Because there are some days that I can't write a single sentence. And, of course, that is the common idea we have of, 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 of genius. You've got to or, wait or, there for or, or, inspiration. Or, cre- or creativity mm. or inspiration, as you say. And and, and Trollope said, um, no, I just sit there and it is like cobbler's wax um, and I work away. And he has this lovely and, – and this has done his reputation um, grave harm. And, and he said uh, – and he gives credit – for his success, uh, to um, his Irish groom, Barney, who, as you say, would wake him up every morning at 5 o'clock so he could be at his desk at 5.30. And exactly as you say, he had his watch out. Every 15 minutes, he would write 250 words. And he said um, of, of uh, his servant, um, I feel I owe more to him than to anyone else for the success I have had. I, beginning at the hour I could complete my literary work before I even dressed for breakfast. And of course, he famously did, and it's true, uh, and this has always been held against him. Well, he would finish one novel, but if his two or two and a half thousand words of the day had not been finished, he would start, he'd pull out a new page and start a new novel. Sometimes he was working on two or three novels at the same time as he did with um, the way we live now. Um, but he said, I uh, this is how i work and and he again he said to george eliot in that conversation you know you're 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 creative and and that's how you write but what i try and do is represent real life which he does yes, so he said, magnificently he, yes he
2: said because if if you focus on the the domestic kind of moral choices that we have, not grand explosions like you tend to get in literature, but just ordinary people facing ordinary challenges, he said those were more instructive, because he's a very moral writer, that was more instructive to the readers than something that's sort of like, you know, spectacularly, almost like supernaturally big, you know? I thought it was really interesting. Business. So and this, attitude, this attitude uh, shows in uh, the way we live now in two ways, of course. The, the novel starts started as a, a project about a woman, a bit like his mum, who's a, a lady novelist and an expose of uh, how newspapers work and how the reviewing game is so rotten and all that, and then turns into this expose of how society goes grovelling and crawling to this uh, swindler called Melmot. And uh, how society prostat- prostitutes its- itself to success and forgets its values. It's very moral that way. But 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 he Should started off. He sat are, down. Are you, are you? He sat down before he wrote a word and said, uh, "I'm going to write uh, what he called the Carberry novel, named after the, uh, the, the the novelist Carberry novel. I'm going to do 20 numbers, uh, like you know um, serial serials, um, 64 pages each, uh, 260 words each page." Forty pages a week to be completed in thirty-two weeks. Well, in fact, he was a little wrong. He completed not in thirty-two weeks but twenty-nine, <laughs> four hundred twenty-five thousand words. And in the meantime, he also wrote another book, Harry Heath uh, Coat of Gangawil. That's just phenomenal. And then he went to work.
0: And then, he, and so, so I, I'll, I'll say a couple of, of of things about his life. So, yeah. um, we've talked about his father and and his mother. Uh, While his mother was in the United States, while his father was struggling. Um, as as a as a lawyer and then as a as a failed farmer, uh, he was at Harrow School as a boarder. He was then at Winchester. He was bullied. He hated it. Uh, he said he didn't have a single friend. He talked about his only achievement from school was winning a a schoolyard fight. Um, he had no idea what to do with his life. And through the contact of his mother, uh, he got a job as a junior clerk in the post office he had an interview for the job that was a disaster again because of his mother's contacts um, he in the end was hired the first few years of his life um, was in penury and he started to think about doing Some writing. He got a break when uh, his boss decided to send him to Ireland. No one uh, else wanted the job. To get him him away uh, from from the office and what he did in Ireland and as you said he was in the post office. He was in the post office for 33 years. What he did in Ireland was basically uh, check that the delivery of the mail was on time uh, check that uh, the routes were appropriate and he developed new routes Um, he would go looking for missing letters. Uh, he, He famously Marked a coin, and he discovered a village um, postmaster um, stealing uh, from from the post, um, and he absolutely loved it. And he was very good. He was a very good, efficient. Bureaucrat. Later in his life, he talked a lot about what are the ideas that we should have for for a good public servant. And um, uh, the idea is that he just worked in the post office, and as, as you say, um, uh, put the the post box in in the UK. But he did so much more than that. He was a very senior. Uh, public servant. He was sent on missions around the world to negotiate uh, mail rates and agreements for the delivery of mail. Um, and he absolutely loved it. And he describes uh, most of his time at the post office as the best time of his life. He started writing novels when he was in uh, in Ireland and they were regarded as not very good. He had a publisher uh, who published one or two, they didn't sell. And then his the publisher told him honestly, Look, I don't think this writing is for you, um, but he kept going, and he would shop his works around to publishers. He would write articles for for periodicals, and then he started on the Barchester Chronicles, a series of novels about uh, the clergy and about villages and about local politics, and it proved uh, hugely, hugely successful.
2: In ca- in fact, he was one. He was up there with Dickens and uh, and all that, and it was contemporary, very successful, um, and. By the time he got to the way we live now, he was 58 years old. Now, most of his novels up to then had been where characters are neither wholly good nor wholly bad, genial, they were quite genial, a um, study of manners and all that kind of stuff. The way we live now is different. There's a little anger there. And there are characters almost entirely bad. Melmott, the financier, is the key. This is unusual for him. So he's just come back from Australia, where he was settling in his son, one of his sons, um, and he comes back and he just thinks this is rotten, this thing. He decides and he writes in his autobiography. I think this might be a little bit like looking back, and you know, his ambition in the novel may have changed during the writing of it.
0: But and anyway. I and I think he thinks that he didn't quite succeed in his ambition. Well, it didn't. For it the didn't. Novel. It wasn't, it and it wasn't, wasn't a success at the time. Well, but no. I think the uh Today, it is regarded as one of his very best novels and the point that it is about a crooked financier and in the wake of the GFC, in the wake of the idea that every bank, every life insurance company wants to rip off its customers, it makes it very relevant. So you can be left-wing or you can be free market and you can see a lot to like in this book.
2: He starts off, he says... This is what he said his ambition was in this monster novel. It's very big. It's probably three times the size of a normal novel.
0: So in, in one uh, pages, talking about, it's about Mel- 750 words. So it's big. <laughs>
2: it's big.
0: It's 750
2: pages. It's big. He, he, uh, and his targets are many, right? There's the church, newspapers, reviewers backscratching, peer review, right? Finance, the crawling up to uh, the – and he, this is what he said about his ambition, if dishonesty can live in a gorgeous palace with pictures on all its walls and gems in all its cupboards, with marble and ivory in all its corners and can give apkin dinners and get into parliament and deal in millions, then dishonesty is not disgraceful. And the man dishonest after such a fashion is not a low scoundrel. This is what he said, if the, if the crook is big enough... Then suddenly and, they're not a and, crook anymore. And, and you know who said that too? And this is – like people traditionally – and there is something to say for this. He's a novel loved by conservatives, a novelist loved by conservatives. But that sentiment is what I see also in Betoelbrecht in his Threepenny novel and Threepenny of opera where uh, Betoelbrecht famously said, you know, little criminals rob banks and big criminals own them.
0: This is a sort of
2: leitmotif and and and, and
0: that is, of course, the – one of the points of the title the way we live now mm. the way we live now and he's talking about the 1870s is it is about money money drives loveless marriages money drives politics um, money cures all ills and one of the themes of the novel is the way that the dying nobility with no with no money is is trying to marry into the nouveau riche and part of the the themes of the novel uh, is that so much of this money is ill-gotten and you mentioned that uh, Trollope had been to Australia so famously Trollope was in Australia twice Um, his, his son Frederick ran a large sheep station uh in uh, western new south wales one of his and, descendants still breeds dogs in new right. south that's right and and uh, <laughs> trollope was in australia um for a year he he traveled um everywhere i longer than that he, he came on two visits and, and, and two, one was 18 months w- two yeah. visits and um he, he he wrote about it he wrote a book about australia um and and new zealand uh, he was the one who famously said um, that uh, you come to Australia and you go uh, to a sheep station and there are three books uh, on the squatter's shelf. There's Macaulay, uh, Shakespeare and and the Bible. Um, and one of the things that he came away with from Australia was he didn't like the gold rushes, as we know. He thought they were ill-gotten gains. He thought it was speculation. And again, this is a theme through the book. So and he spe- thought those servants were a bit so, too upbeat to So you. speculation <laughs> is gambling. Speculation is risk-taking and it is somehow immoral. But what is compared to the idea of waking up at 5 o'clock and churning out 2,500 words a day, which is hard work, and and so... Uh, it did, at one level it disappoints me, but at another level it pleases me that, for example, writers in The Guardian can can um, uh, rave about how good the way we live now is because uh, Trollope's point is you know, the world we live on is is built on these uh, shifting sands that are illegitimate. we better get into that, the, that's, plot, the that's the critique of modern capitalism.
2: Yes, indeed. But let's get on to the plot. I think we should have gone to this a bit earlier. Here's the plot. Um, but it's one of these big baggy novels, so there's lots of subplots. Fundamentally, Melmot is a financier. No one knows where he comes from. Was it France? Was it Germany? Where was it? New York. In the end, at the very end, you, uh, or is he Jewish? I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, that's a Jewish. theme.
0: The anti the Semitism of the establishment is a big theme. Absolutely,
2: the absolutely. Very much so. It, in the very end, you hear in fact, is uh, from America, from an Irish family. <laughs> 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 no one knows that, but that's at the very end. I don't know whether he just threw. And that he could in have been a. Joke. Fenian, Yes, <laughs> it could have been anything. But he comes to um he comes to London uh, with lots of money. And everyone vaguely thinks that oh they' they've heard that maybe is is a a crook. And indeed, it turns out he was a crook you know, overseas. But of course, no one quite knows. Um, they love the fact that he's got
0: lots of money, and they and they overlook all of his shady past. For lots money.
2: of money, yes. And he's very cunning because there's lots of uh, lords who've got no money, lots of young, uh, uh, you know, barons and whatever who looking, gamble their money away, gamble their money away. They're in the clubs gambling. They're shiftless. They're they and they. His, this man, and they would
0: never have an idea of working no, for money.
2: No, no, their 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 idea of getting money is to marry an heiress. They settle on this man's Melmott's daughter, and uh, who's who develops tr- tremendously in this book. Uh, these are these are not characters that are, as you see them, that's how they are for the rest of the show. Uh, she develops wonderfully, um, and his money. He uses quite carefully to lure in noble families that need the money. They need his money, and therefore he gets himself some respectability. There's also what was uh, fashionable at the time the big American development of railways, etc. He then launches a railway scheme. For America, no one knows what it actually does, from Salt Lake City, a railway line to the Gulf of Mexico. And and there's never any intention to actually build a railway line. It is simply (laughs) to
0: sell shares and speculate.
2: And so he buys himself into respectability. Everyone knows he's a crook, but they need his money too much. And he's also the one man rich enough to put on a big dinner for the emperor of China. And everyone, because it's a social event... Everyone has to overcome the dislike of him to buy a seat at his table, to be there. They've got to be there. Otherwise, they're nothing. The Emperor of China, the Prime Minister's there. It's fabulous. Um, and then he gets even elected to Parliament. Which side he is going to choose, that's open. For, you know, you're thinking of Turnbull here, you're thinking of uh, Clive Palmer, you're thinking of maybe even Donald Trump. No one knows which side he chooses. He doesn't know what and, and, he chooses, but again, he does know Britain
0: needs him. And it's, uh, Britain needs him. He wants to be in Parliament. He's told he should be in Parliament. Why? We don't know. And Trollope does that beautifully. In the end, we're not sure why uh, he chooses to be a, a Liberal or a Conservative. He could have been anything. And
2: it's interesting, too. There's a whack in this at uh, Benjamin Disraeli, who's, of course, from a Jewish family, British Prime Minister. Um, he... ...features quite ignobly as the Prime Minister who escorts Melmot into his own party, uh, which uh, Trollope
0: is... Uh and, and, and Trollope was a Liberal, he was a Gladstone he, fan... He stood for a Parliament in a rigged election and interestingly, uh, it was one of the last elections that was before the introduction of the secret ballot... Uh, if it had been a secret ballot, the the idea was that uh, everyone who was bribed would have voted for him anyway. Uh, he came away very bitter from the experience. but uh, he, I think he, that comes but, into this too. But, he, but he, he, he still loved his his politics and his liberalism about social improvement because he thought the Conservatives were just uh, a bunch of aristocrats who didn't care and who didn't Well, there's anything. a line
2: in this about Benjamin Israely, of course, was a Conservative uh, Prime Minister, um, he said uh, of this character, who's clearly uh, Disraeli, uh, he was a realisation of that hitherto hazy mixture of radicalism and old fogeyism, of which we have heard uh, lately heard from a political master whose eloquence, Disraeli was uh, a novelist as well, whose eloquence has been employed in teaching us that progress can only be expected from those who declare, whose declared purpose is... To stand still. <laughs> but anyway, Conservative then was more a reaction. So he,
0: he, he might have come across and did come across in the book as very cynical about politics, correct. the process of politics, but he still believed very strongly in in social improvement okay, so and in our ideas of morals.
2: That's correct. So the, basically the political thrust, the narrative thrust of the book comes from this Melmott who rises to prominence, everyone forgets their manners, forgets, sort of overlooks it as a crook, feasts at his uh, table, and then there's a. Or and dear, wants to marry his daughter. And wants to marry his daughter. Lords are pushing their. And, and, and part of the book is them haggling for enough money um, to make the marriage not so and, shameful. And there's
0: a lovely line rank squanders money. Trade makes it, and then trade <laughs> purchases rank by regilding its splendour. <laughs> correct,
2: correct, correct. But now, if that's the heart, his rise, and then uh, he gets into parliament, even, and then his subsequent absolute smash uh, because he is a swindler. He is a swindler, uh, in, of the most basic kind. Apart around that, though, like I say, this this book could have been subtitled "The Business of Marriage," because I think. For me, a lot of the interests are the ones that preoccupied Trollope in so many others of his books, and you can be quite cynical about this, about how you marry, and particularly because he is a wonderful writer of women's characters. His women's characters usually live even and more... That,
0: and it's interesting. That the, it, it's good that identity politics hadn't been invented uh, then because he wouldn't have been allowed to to write about 20-year-old women uh, marrying either for love or for money. But even at the time, a lot of people said, how does he get into people's brains, whether it's a young yes. woman, whether it's an old man? That his dialogue about love and meaning is is just terrific.
2: Okay, well, there, is, there are infinite numbers of pairings and uh, shifting pairings. The business of marriage, where... Again, money counts, and we can all be cynical about that. But Trollope knew that money does count for most people, and it counts today for a lot of people. Who they marry, you know, a a poor woman would rather, and quite often, I know there are lots of exceptions. Don't you know? Don't, don't judge me on this. A poor woman would rather marry a rich man, and you see that. You see the trophy bride syndrome. You see. You know, uh, desperate housewives and all that kind of stuff. I well, wonder no, what they're called, housewives and, of, and, and And he acknowledges... Well, housewives of Melbourne And, and or he something. acknowledges I can't even what the is. that everyone's going into that marriage knowing it's loveless. Well, not quite, because he's got the whole range, hasn't he? Um, he's, he's got various pairings. At the end, there are five weddings. At the end of the book, there are five weddings. Now, obviously, it's a little bit of, um, you know, it sort of tails off into a bit of tying up of loose ends. But there are five weddings... And uh so it's one sort is of a, a happy ending. Well no there's a couple of, no. happy, a couple of happy Well, endings. sort of happy endings. There's one true love match where they both love each other. There's one that's nearly close where Lady Carberry finally finds someone She that finally gives in. Finally mm. gives in. And uh, there's one where only one guy is in love. This is a Miller with a woman who wanted to marry above her station to Lady Carberry's son, who turns out to be the complete bastard. So all right, they marry. And then there's uh, the daughter of uh, Melmott. She finally marries, pure marriage of convenience, to a man on the make, an American speculator. And then there's uh, Melmot's widow at the end because he kills himself, and she marries someone just to get some respectability Sorry, is that, in the new country. You reckon country.
0: that's about an accurate proportion of how marriages run these days? Uh,
2: well, and there's a, cu- a couple of fail <laughs> ones. I mean, you know, the guy that's presented to you as the moral arbiter, uh, Lady Carbridge's nephew, so uh, cousin, so. Model, model of rectitude, he sees Melmott from the start as a fraud with whom he'd have nothing to do. He is desperately in love with her daughter and never succeeds. He's, he's morally rectitude, but he's a bit of a prig, and she she can't go for him. So this for me, there's a whole swirl of different relationships with Lady Carberry starting with this key. I think this is one of the key phrases in this side of the book. It's one of these big baggy monsters. She says to her daughter... Oh, I, I, maybe it's a daughter. I've forgotten the context. She says, "Love is like any other luxury. You have no right to it unless you can afford it." And that is a key. Uh, if you can afford to be in love, great. If you can't, marry with someone And with and money.
0: I, I think your description of a big baggy novel is is right because it, it's baggy, but it also has a, a sharpness and a structure to it. And so there's the money. Which we've spoken about. There's the the love and and relationships, and there's also a lovely undertone of religion and yes. and a, a trollop. Uh, wrote a lot about uh, religion. He was these days he'd call relatively low church. He was sceptical about um, uh, uh, about uh, the the aristocracy and its relationship with the establishment church. And uh, there's uh, a great Catholic priest in in the book. There's an Anglican. Uh, bishop and there's this lovely exchange about um, what religion is so you have exactly as you say you have um, uh, the country squire who, who attends uh, church because that's uh, accepted but he, he doesn't have one for the um, establishment and he says um, look uh, we, we all go to church but we are not really caring for each other as much as we should and, and um, he says look everything is going to the dogs as fast as it can go. And of course, the establishment bishop says, well, we're building churches much faster than we used to. And the squire says, but do we say our prayers in them when we have built them? And then the bishop says, well, it's very hard to see into the minds of men and we're doing better than we used to. And we should uh, continue doing uh, what we're doing by giving money and building churches. And that's how we're going to get to heaven. And then the squire says... I suppose men will go to heaven, my Lord, by doing as they would be done by. Yeah, but see, this is—I think—Trollope
2: hated religious enthusiasts.
0: To be yeah, and 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 what an attack on enthusiasts, and what a statement about live and let live. And I, yeah, I, but I, I, this
2: is this is how his attitude to the church really is, and it comes through also in the Barchester Chronicles. And it's socially useful. Everyone should go there and know their place and do just be nice. It's a construct, you know, isn't but it? But don't give us all the God. And in fact, there's in in this book, there's a um, a. a a Catholic who's a really he, – he, he's he, a Catholic
1: He's too
0: enthusiastic and he turns people off. He by turns people into, off because he wants to talk about God, for <laughs> goodness. And then, and there's a dinner party where exactly he's trying to talk about God and, and and there's a passing reference to, well, I don't think the bishop has talked about God in 20 years. <laughs> but, you
2: know, the thing about Trollope, you know, this is one of the things I love about him. If you really had to be honest as a Trollope lover as I am, you have to say – and thankfully I'm also a Dickens lover – Charles Dickens is far more brilliant. Far more brilliant in mm. his use of language. He gives a fi- a characters that live forever. I mean, you never forget a Sari Gamp. You never forget Copperfield, Pickwick. You never forget Pickwick. You never forget Joe,
0: the street sweeper that we've talked about. Well, well will always stay with
2: you. Macquarba. Who can forget Macquarba? You know, those figures live, and the scenes live. Trump is not like that. You don't really pick on a sentence think, what a marvellous use of, you know, turn of phrase and uh, what a fantastic character that just lives and lives. I mean, some of his characters to me do live, but not in the way that Dickens does. It's the voice of Trollope. You're sitting down with a guy of just good sense. I think you have to be sort of simpatico, otherwise it doesn't mean anything to you. A nice guy of sound moral virtues, um, uh, an acute eye, funny,
0: and he knows people, and, and well, he's a gossip. Well, you see, this is he—he he, he knows people, and um, we can talk about Dickens v. Trollope, and that's been an ongoing debate for a hundred years. And they had a cold war between them; they didn't quite get on because well, each, he hated each, the way Dickens was, treated. His wife. each was jealous of of the other. But I would argue Dickens is a great storyteller, but his characters are caricatures. Whereas Trollope is about. Life, and that was the view of Tolstoy. That was the view of George Eliot. And researching uh, and thinking about Trollope after having reread this book, I was intrigued to see that the greatest political biographer of our era, the great Robert Caro, who's written the multi-volume biography of of Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson mm. um, is a huge Trollope fan. Trollope is his favorite writer. Uh, and Cara was talking about how Trollope captures life. It is fluid. It is engaging. It is characters you can meet in the street. So I'll uh, cut uh, to actually, the chase, on I, that point. I'm going to cut to the chase, Andrew. You're on a desert island. Dickens v. Trollope. Which one do you have to pick? That's. that's I don't know. Come really on. Sure. I can't. I know. Beethoven v. Mozart. But. It let's is. Cut well, to the chase. You're right. You're right. Yeah, but if you had to pick one. Yeah. It's a toss-up for me. That is a toss-up. So, what, and and this is interesting. But, why, but, why, why then, are uh, we talking about Dickens so much more than? than well,
2: because Trollope. I do think those figures, those characters, characters really leap at you. But, but Trollope is of this world. You're, you're absolutely correct. And to go to your point about, you know, they are the characters you could meet in the street, and they are, and that their battles sometimes are. Huge to them, just like our own concerns are huge to us. Whereas they—they don't—they're not like you know. I'm. De- I've just killed someone. Where do I hide the body? And how am I going to get over the fact? You know, like
0: Dostoevsky. And you know, I've oh. just bumped into my
2: cousin's brother's
0: mother. Wow, what yeah. a coincidence! Which is not Trollope. that No, different. no. With
2: him, with him, you can get a page on. Oh, do I go to this party or not? You know, <laughs> it's like that. Which is true. Yeah, and, and, is and, and,
0: and why did he or she look at me like that? And. Oh, you know, do I go out with them? Do I not go out with them? What do I do? What will my mother well, say? This,
2: this is this is one of the things. If you look at Dickens, you rarely get a description of people doing their work, right? They're, they're not, they sort of make money, but you don't know how they make money, unless they're a lawyer. That's about See, it. See, I, I think
0: for Dickens, his characters serve a purpose, but for Trollope, his characters live because they're just
2: there. But the whole thing is he does know how the world works and this is one of the funny, but coming as a journalist myself um, one of the things I love about it and the fact, you know, the Trollop sensibility, which is what I love is the kind of guy I'd love to sit in a club with and, you know, you can imagine the leather
0: couches. And we should talk about he was very... uh, But I'd love that. But just on that, he was very clubbable. He loved the leather couches. He loved playing whist. He he was loud and boisterous. He liked to drink. Very noisy. You knew when he came into the room. You'd love that, whereas
2: Dickens, as Trollope himself said, you know, was a sort of like uh, he was the the sun around which everything had to move, uh, so to speak. And uh, he didn't rate Dickens for that. But when it comes to Trollope, for instance, writing about something I know about, newspapers and reviewing, it's just so brilliant. It is just like, it's writing this 150 years ago. This is now as well, you know. Like he says, for instance, because newspapers play a, bit, play a big role here, one of the newspaper editors uh, runs for an election against Melmot and loses. Uh, one of the uh, newspaper editors marries Lady Carberry. Uh, she goes to the newspaper editors. She's a very beautiful woman, a widow, and she flirts with them to try to get them to There's review her books. There's a lot of handsome books. women very handsome in women. this book. Absolutely. Um, here's one – among the other things, with Trollope, you just – like I say, the sensibility, apropos of almost nothing – he says, for instance, eulogy, talking about newspapers, eulogising people. Eulogy is invariably dull, a fact that editor, Mr. Alf, had discovered and had utilised. Of all the reviews, the crushing review is the most popular as being the most readable. And it's true. Bagging someone in a paper, I know, that sells. If I go and praise someone in a newspaper, boring. If you go and kick them to pieces, that sells. I don't want to people to snap Thinking that that's that why sounds like clickbait. It is clickbait, and, and Trollope would have understood clickbait perfectly. He would have, and he also here is another thing he understood about newspapers and 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 all that um, the uh, the laws of libel, which is the same thing here. He says, Mister Alfred discovered another fact: abuse from those <laughs> who occasionally praise is considered to be personally offensive, and they, they who give personal offence will sometimes make the world too hot to uh, handle, too uh, hot to hold them. But censure from those who are always finding fault is regarded as so much a matter of course that it seems to be objectionable. So if I praise 10 people but insult one, that person is really offended. But if I get a reputation for offending everyone, like a Joe Aston in the Fin Review, it doesn't matter. That's just what Joe Aston. does. You, and
0: then if you offend <laughs> everyone but say something nice about one person, everyone will know it. Exactly and, and, correct. And you, you made a, a really nice point about how he would just drop these gems. So apropos of basically nothing, he's got uh, two of his characters talking, as they so often do, about love and, and, and their relationships. And then this this lovely line. Uh, one of the characters says, um, if men were equal tomorrow and all wore the same coats, they would wear different coats the next <laughs> Day. that's, true. So, that's he, true so he's got his politics he's got his religion he's got his money he's got his love he's got his family and 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 we've mentioned um Felix the the dissolute son it's a lovely relationship well, actually probably not if you were living it between um Felix and his sister and the mother and the sister knows the mother does everything for this bad son who cheats on on people who lies who steals who gambles and and all through the book headers thinking but why does my mother love him more? I'm just this good person and I'm trying yeah. to do good.
2: And, that's and Trollope for you. He just sees good, bad and all the. It's just marvellous, you know. I, I I, look. I, 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 you sound like
0: I could be winning you over the Trollope <laughs> versus Dickens.
2: <laughs> well, it's interesting with, with him, like I say, um, with, with Trollope, you're always with a, a person, if you like Trollope, and I do like Trollope, I can imagine some women, progressive women wouldn't like him.
0: As a person. You are there with a person. But but, but talking about progressive women, he's one of the very... And again, noticed at the time, he is one of the very best writers about women. His characters are strong. They are varied. Women
2: are the stars of his book. Like uh, Lizzie Eustace in the Eustace Diamonds in one of the parliamentary novels. Absolutely correct. But, you know, just in that observation, for instance, where you said... uh, Where he wrote about... You know, if everyone had to wear <laughs> the same coat the <laughs> next day, <laughs> man. In that one observation, you already have a critique of why communism must inevitably yep. fail. Yep. This is a man of such good sense, right? He knows how people work, and this comes through again and again. Particularly, it started with the Barchester Chronicles, where he's talking about how the how the politics of of the Anglican Church. <laughs> it's not about God; it's all about politics. Politics, Who's preferment? There? It's it's just. So I really like him. And, 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 and the novelist um, Amanda Craig once wrote a fantastic piece uh, talking about why she loves Trollope so much. And it really is, she said, uh, you know, if you, if you ask, she said, you know, Dickens, yes, and Austen, yes, and brilliant writers, you know, brilliant writers. But she said, if, however, you were to ask whom people would, t- you know, other, other readers would turn to for comfort, entertainment, refreshment and even guidance, then the answer quite possibly would be Anthony Trollope. And I'm, I'm
0: going to say of all of the books we've done, they're all magnificent. Or, they're m- great books. This is the most enjoyable.
2: I think so. But, you know, I was saying to James uh, my little theory, you know, Netflix has made us familiar with and, and, and love the idea, you know, with binge watching and all that. A series that can go on for 70, 80 episodes instead of the old film of 90 minutes and you told the whole story in 90 minutes. Now we can sit there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and and not get enough. We want the whole, we want to live the characters, including minor characters and side plots. And the plots
0: and the the subplots and all the changes. Well, these baggy
2: novels, Dickens, uh, George Eliot, Obviously, I mean,
0: Thackeray. He was a great friend of Thackeray. Yes, he was. Um, Wilkie Collins. He was friends with a big Wilkie Collins fan. But the big
2: ba- Wilkie Collins, perhaps less so. Uh, not when so bag- I think he's of the other baggy, so baggy, novel. baggy that, That's true. But Trollope, certainly. And I wonder whether the Netflix generation, if they ever get round to reading again, can come to reading these books, which are seen to be so compendious. You know, they're not a narrative straight as an arrow. We start from this premise and end of that. Conclusion. And he also
0: jumps in time too. So he will sometimes describe something and he'll say, oh, but by the way, this happened a few hours or a few days earlier, which then puts this into context. So he he uses lots of narrative craft around that as well. Well,
2: that's an interesting point. I mean, we were talking um, with uh, Cervantes in uh, Don Quixote 400 years ago, how interesting it was that he had so many narrative so many uh, uh, literary sort of devices already there. And here's one of the first great novels, and he's breaking the, you know the fourth, the fourth wall, the fourth yes. wall and inserting himself and commenting and, 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 and all that. And, and Trollope does that, about 300 years later, or 250 years later. Uh, he does the same sort of thing uh, where it says, for instance, um, he talks about one of the uh, um, characters, Paul Montague. Uh, Who luckily ends up one of the uh, men who does get married to someone he loves, where he says, Paul's sitting there thinking, how can he mend this rift? How can he mend this rift with a girl that he uh, so loves? You know, uh, uh, he's got an embarrassing thing he has to tell her. he's basically cheating on her. Basically. Well, he's doing it (laughs) in a way you might think he was cheating on her, but he's actually. This is one of the great things. Paul Montague, to backtrack, I'm sorry about this, listeners. Paul Montague has had a, uh, a fling with an American woman well lives in America, made a certain promises, passionate in love, she's a widow, or he thought he, she was a widow. Not quite so. He goes back to England. Uh, he thinks he's broken off with the American woman, falls in love with Heta Carberry. Um, but the woman from America comes and chases him. And Trollope captures perfectly that idea of how trapped by guilt you are. He feels guilty. He feels he can't just leave her there,
0: dump her and leave her. He feels guilty, but he still goes out with the widow. He goes out with the widow to make her feel better. He doesn't...
2: He, and, and he kept, and, and
0: Trump captures that guilt. He knows
2: he's the doing trapping, the wrong thing. The, the trapping. This is what I say. There's everyday things, you know, you've broken up with someone, they ring you. Oh, can we just, I, I don't want to get back and, to you. And I then Troy says, well, do I you? write
0: her a letter, but oh, that's a bit weak? You know, do oh. I, well, do I ring? You know, these days, do I ring? Do I text? Do I have to see to the in person?
2: Is, correct. <laughs> going back to the author aside on exactly that, you know, the breaking the fourth wall. So he says, uh, so there's Paul's Montague thinking, well, look, I better go and say it to her face nice. because if in a letter, it just looks yuck. It looks deceitful. If I show her how I mean it, I'll go, look, let me go and talk to her. And then Trollope breaks in himself. He says, um, I think, therefore, that Paul Montague did quite right in hurrying up to London. So suddenly the author not, breaks in and says, I think my character did
0: the right yes, thing. Yes. And, I mean, and this is brilliant. And then, and then what's interesting, Trollope is by implication asking, the reader. Well, do you think he do did you the think right? It. Yeah. yeah, I mean this is so. It like I say, it's a gossip. I can, for me,
2: this is while he's got that sort of feel and his image, and in a person like he was a fox hunter. He loved. Fox, he rode to the end of his life. He was a fox hunter. All that kind of stuff. He, he looks like a gentleman's gentleman,
0: right? and, and he looks the, the stereotype is of him is very Victorian. Like he's got correct that huge all that huge beard. beard. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. But. His, he loved the company of women, and like I, was, I said near the start, you know, George Eliot was perhaps his dearest friend. She loved him, and his wife, Rose, transcribed everything and was his muse and all and that. He quite he, was and, in and, love with her, but interestingly,
0: like Dickens. He had uh, some female followers and some acolytes that he tried to get closer. Didn't quite work out. He didn't or, do the Dickens thing. No, he did, it wasn't nowhere near as bad as Dickens, but there was a little bit of that too. But I think
2: he prided himself on being the family man. Yes. Prided himself on being loyal to his Even wife.
0: though as we know again from the autobiography, both of his sons completely let him down and in the autobiography he's complaining about uh, having lent his son the money and then a drought breaks the sun and he talks about all the money he's just lost lending his money the son to build the farm. Well, that's in true.
2: That isn't you know, in his own life you just think genius really is in part a matter of luck. But it's not transmitted through genes necessarily. Okay, you know uh, his mother, through force, you know example, did help him a lot. But the sons, yes, they didn't. And, and you make a
0: much. nice point. I mean, I would almost say Trollope was a genius. Maybe not quite, but genius comes in different forms. So it can be George Eliot saying, "I'm staring at the sky. I can't write a word today," or it can be genius uh, Trollope. I'll just knock off two and a half thousand words no, before wait. breakfast.
2: No, but but John.
0: Yeah, who, who was I? I'm
2: trying to think. Is it Stephen Pinker that says, you know, um, genius is uh, just, uh, what is it, 10,000 no, hours? We're, uh, uh, Malcolm spoken, Gladwell. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. The, yes. 10,000 hours. You've got to sit there 10,000 hours and you will get something done. Well, Trollope is that man. He sat there. He sat there. And for me, it's like a, a real reproach to all the, to, you know, the grants industry here, you know, I need a grant so I can sit in that Australian studio in Paris and, you know, great thoughts will come to me unless I get the grant. You know, you've got to rescue me from this humdrum life where I've got to go and work. I need time and, and space.
0: And, and, and Trulloch didn't ask for that ever. And and as we've spoken about, uh, he knocks off two or two and a half thousand words and then goes to work in a senior job, yep. in a, in a uh, job that he loves doing and is very good at. It is not... leave me alone, I need my shack, I need a taxpayer's grant and I can't do anything else to do my pottery or my poetry. (laughs) I'm just going to bloody well work at this. And in fact, you might even argue
2: that the fact that he was so in the world, in the world of the post office and the business and dealing with people informed his literature because he knew how people worked in various ways. And he knew about their
0: motives, he knew about politics, and he knew about money. You're correct.
2: But let's, you know, here's one interesting thing, John. we mentioned the fact that Dickens was a contemporary. Trollope thought Dickens was an egomaniac and he didn't like him for how he treated his wife. He was generous enough in his autobiography to rate Dickens probably the third best writer he knew. I think Thackeray was the top, I yeah, think. Yeah, Thackeray. And then uh, he liked Elliot, but he thought it was a little bit laboured at times. And he wrote this autobiography, by the way, only to be published at the event of his death. So he could be frank with his friend, knowing that she wasn't there. And Dickens, he rated third. So it was generous enough like that. Here's an interesting parallel between their lives. Dickens never forgave his parents, for, and particularly his mum, for dropping him off at a blacking factory when they lost all their money and he thought dooming him for the rest of his life this incredibly bright boy in doing manual work with people he thought was his social inferiors. And after, up to the, for the rest of his life he worked like a demon in part to make his way in the world and be... And prove himself. Prove himself but Redeem also... Redeem himself. ...social access Trollope enjoyed the social access that his books gave him because lords read him and and invited him and all that. Trollope also felt he'd been abandoned. He was literally abandoned. He spent one summer in London on his own. He was sent to a boarding school and a scholarship boy. Everyone knew that he was there. The sons of lords and barons and whatever knew he was there on a scholarship. And
0: he ran out of money? He had
2: no money. And he was despised and he was dirty and is socially inept. And his older brother in the fagging system there would beat him so hard that people that went to school with him remembered the screams of Anthony Trollope. You know, they were a bit closer later on, uh, but he never forgot that either. This is a boy who up to his 20s thought he was absolutely useless. Wasn't a particularly good scholar. Thought he just was a failure. Thought he was a complete failure. Contemplated suicide. Contemplated suicide, indeed, indeed. Indeed. Um, it stood by where his mother was doing all this stuff, then, his father's. And then, and then so, he went so so to write his books and
0: was told by his publisher, oh, no, I don't think you're any good. Well, you know, stick to your day isn't job. It so interesting, you know,
2: <laughs> as I keep saying to James, who's sitting by the panel here, you're too happy to be truly successful. <laughs> Prove me wrong, James. But, you know, here are, two, here are two guys who had something in their childhood so scarifying, they worked like. Demons for the rest of their lives
0: to overcome. The it. unhappy childhood thesis is that more important than ten thousand hours. Well, maybe.
2: Well, you still got to do ten thousand.
0: And you hours. got a, you t- you do your two and a half thousand words every day to. To get good at
2: I bet at you, it. look, if you counted Dickens' words, he probably was nearly up there as well. He also wrote plays and letters. And
0: and, and I, I, I keep on reflecting on this because sometimes people ask you, well, how much should I write and what should I do? And it's just get the piece of paper and get the pen or get the typewriter or the computer. Just do it. And just do it. Don't be staring at the sky. Get Mozart, something on the page. I don't, do you think Mozart? How I think we need to. I think I'm, we need. I'm sure someone will uh, text or email or put a comment to James on how Mozart did it.
2: Well, Mozart. I can't believe that Mozart was just sitting there thinking, "If only a tune would come." I think he just sat down and wrote. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how many great writers and, and and they wrote for commission. They they wrote on commission. I want you to write this symphony or this play or this book. I want that that done. By the I mean, I uh, end was, of the month,
0: I, I might have mentioned this. I think Handel wrote Messiah for money. He, well, he,
2: he needed the dough. Well, Rossini did. Uh, Rossini, what did Rossini wrote? I think something like thirty nine operas by and, the time he was forty, and then he quit. And doesn't
0: it say so? And you mentioned the arts community. Doesn't it say something about how people view um, Trollope today and even Dickens? Oh, you know this idea that you write for money you 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 write so you can sell books what do they think and, they're and, doing it for well no you write for a government grant
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly right oh look i just love Trollope. i really love trollop this is a book as you said at the start you know this is in a very way in many ways a modern book i'm reading for instance the newspaper paper industry we didn't mention the criticism where you know, the peer review peer review, <laughs> oh, today peer review yes is a huge huge issue we hear so many people saying oh, peer review uh, global warming scientists they're peer-reviewed, you know? So it must be right. And then you think, well, no, it's mates' rates, okay? You give it to a, a couple of other scientists who review their work who like the uh, like what is writing and, and depend on it. But Lady Carberry does peer review. She goes to these... Uh, she actually nakedly says, look... Uh, to one uh, newspaper editor, listen, can you kindly review my book? And by the way, your own is so good. I plan to write something really nice about your book, I, which he knows is a dud. I, and the newspaper editor goes away. This is in The Way We Live Now. He says he knew that uh, Lady Carberry's book was bad, but he thought he could review it even without cutting the pages, you know, the pages that were stitched <laughs> together. He knew he could do it. He knew what the sort of thing that we could... And so he needs the money because yes, he's got daughters to raise... That's how it works, and, and
0: there's lots of mates rates. I mean, we've got a very live debate now around the world on the role of directors and and and, and company boards. And a uh, hundred years ago, Troll is writing about a company board that does nothing. It is mates appointing mates, Correct. and they are only there to speculate on the shares. And he writes vividly about a couple of directors who know they know nothing about the company and who don't
2: care. But they like the. Access it gives, and the cheap and they and they
0: like the expenses, and they know that they are not even building a railway; they are doing it to fleece the public. (laughs) I wish I wish he could be more. Well, I mean, I was about to say I wish he could be more positive about capitalism, but of course he's very positive because this is about hard work. It is about the rewards of hard work and decency, which is the story of his life, and is the story of many of of the characters. Look, uh, a great a great book from. A really
1: enjoyable companion. Thank you for
0: suggesting it, Andrew. It's a good one.
1: Lovely. Okay, that's all the time we've got uh, for for this episode. So uh, apologies we didn't get to any specific questions, but I do feel that all the questions that got, got sent in were answered over the course of the show. So if you did have a question, uh, hopefully you feel that they talked about it. Uh, we will s- thank you to Andrew and John, and we will see you guys again in a fortnight's time.